Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to uh, Ollie, this week's Ollie Speaker Series called Berkeley 2050. I'm Chris Treadway, and I'm the Assistant Chancellor for Government and Community Relations at UC Berkeley, and very pleased to be here today to introduce our illustrious speakers to you all. It's, it's going to be a good conversation. Before I, before I do this, though, I did want to thank Susan Hoffman for having me here and the whole Ollie team for producing these seri speaker series. I think it's a great service to the community, so thank you to Susan and her team. Uh, so one of the things I love about what I do at Berkeley is that we get to engage with our faculty experts on a regular basis. We take them to meet policymakers and elected officials on any topic you can think of under the sun. So it's a, it's a real perk for us to, to work with our faculty and our staff experts. Um, they're not only you know, re really leading the frontiers of knowledge, but they're also engaged in solving real-world problems and um, bringing their expertise to the community, I think, is a, is a great service. So um, I'm happy to be here to highlight the work of two of our star faculty and staff um, today to share their research and best practices and insights with you here today. So first of all, Kira Stoll is the Director of Sustainability at UC Berkeley, and she was the 2016 recipient of the Sustainability Champion Award at the California Higher Education Sustainability Conference. She was celebrated for recognizing the critical role that staff play in transforming campus operations as well as providing leadership for UC system-wide initiatives. At the campus level, Kira spearheaded a solar energy procurement project which brought one megawatt of photovoltaic energy to the campus through a collaboration with 19 other public agencies. Um, she's also worked diligently to improve alternative transportation options on the campus, as well as reducing greenhouse gas emissions from our operations. In her system-wide role as co-chair of the Climate Change Working Group and representative to the UC Global Climate Leadership Council, Kira has advocated for staff engagement and climate action planning that has driven progress towards UC's goal to be carbon neutral by 2025. We're also pleased to have David Woolley joining us as visiting professor at the UC Berkeley Goldman School of Public Policy and executive director of the Center for Environmental Public Policy. He has more than 30 years experience with electric power regulation, climate policy, and Clean Air Act implementation. David is also of counsel at the Oakland firm of Keys and Fox LLP, a law practice focused on distributed energy resources, and is a consultant to the Energy Foundation. Previously, David served as an assistant attorney general in New York, taught energy and environmental law at Pace University Law School, and was a founder of and executive director of the Pace Energy Project. Later, he directed the American Wind Energy Association's Northeast Policy Project, served as counsel to the Clean Air Task Force, and as vice president for domestic policy initiatives at the Energy Foundation in San Francisco. And finally, David is also the co-author of the West Group's Clean Air Handbook. So now, please join me in welcoming Kira Stoll to the stage. Wonderful. Well, good afternoon, and thank you for having me. I'm really um, happy to be here and to be 
talking to this group. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Chris, for that nice introduction. So again, Kira Stolen, the Director of Sustainability at the campus. And I've been at the UC Berkeley campus for about 18 years, and um, I was also raised here in Berkeley. So my heart is here, and um, that's I'm, I feel fortunate that I'm able to um, work in the community on really critical issues um, around uh, the environment, um, environmental justice issues, and particularly climate change and um, the urgency around what we need to do in our communities and more broadly um, to um, ad address climate disruption. So um, I'm going to spend um, 15 or 20 minutes talking to you a little bit about what we're doing at UC Berkeley around these uh, environmental issues within the context of the University of California and what we're doing um, as a very large um, and influential uh, state agency around this, some of the initiatives that we're doing. And then uh, David's going to um, uh, come on up and talk about some of the um, policy uh, uh, level um, issues at the state and the federal level. And then we're going to have some time for Q&A at the end. So looking forward to having a conversation uh, as well. So uh, just um, there are some of those solar photovoltaics that Chris was mentioning. Um, that's on our MLK Student Union. And uh, we're very, um, we were very happy to get some on-site solar in the last few years, and we're looking at some larger installations coming up in the next few years. So just for context, um, you know, why higher education and why are we important when we're talking about uh, climate action? And there's a lot of, there's, uh, there's so much research that goes on that's really important in these areas. And there's also ac uh, activation around what we're doing as an institution. And so this is just a few examples of why academia in, um, in, these, in these areas. So uh, the, the um, uh, Chancellor Carol Christ formed a group earlier this year um, in um, Davos uh, looking at what we can do as institutions, um, uh, academic, academic institutions and our role in our communities, um, and then how do we also make our institutions um, uh, better in their environmental practices. Uh, similarly, the UC system is part of a group called UC3, um, formed um, President Napolitano from the UC system, formed that group with some similar missions. Uh, and then I just mentioned We Are Still In, which is a movement of uh, businesses, faith-based faith groups, and um, academia, and various other organizations that have come together and said that we need to hold up our, our obligations um, to the Paris Accord, um, regardless of what maybe the federal government is doing. And there's 350 academic institutions that are part of the We Are Still In area. So um, what are we doing at UC? Um, well, we've been very active in the sustainability um, area for a number of years. We were one of the first institute, academic institutions to develop a, what we call a sustainable practices policy. We now have a policy that covers nine areas in the environment, um, from climate change, green building, supply chain management and procurement, food, water, transportation, 
um, and uh, a few other areas. And that policy continues to grow over time, as our environmental movement does. But one of the major pieces of that sustainability policy is our climate action area. So um, we have, uh, we've, we made some uh, first climate policy uh, commitments in 2006, and more recently, uh, in 2013, the UC system committed to be carbon neutral from our, our operations, our energy operations on the campus, and from our vehicle fleet by the year 2025. So across the UC system, that's uh, in greenhouse gas terms, that's about 1.4 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions that uh, we've committed to become carbon neutral on by the year 2025. Um, and so it's a very ambitious goal, uh, but it's also been very activating around what we, what we think we can do in terms of implementation. So these are the carbon neutrality goals, again, um, kind of in summary. So um, I mentioned the carbon neutrality by 2025. We also look at other areas where we have carbon impacts, things like um, the waste we send to the landfill or the um, greenhouse gas emissions associated with the water we use. And that falls into a category where we have a, a, a further out time horizon, 2050, but we, we may commit to something earlier than that. Um, and then we have supporting parts of our policy, and uh, some very new um, additions to that have been um, that new buildings and large renovations that we do that are off of our main campus um, energy systems will be zero net carbon starting in July 2019, so any project that's approved after that time. Um, we'll be focusing on electrification, so getting away from natural gas and focusing on um, electric systems, where we know that over in a much sooner time frame we can have 100% carbon-free electricity. And then we have energy efficiency reduction targets. Um, we're looking at some biogas replacement for our natural gas systems um, and on-site renewables. So you know the Berkeley campus. I know you're probably all familiar with it, but it's always good to kind of put it in context, right? We're 150 years old plus now. We have old buildings, newer stock, uh, you know, 50,000-plus people come on and off the campus every day. So when we're talking about the environment and the carbon, we're a small city. Uh, and, uh, and so we have that kind of set of challenges um, and opportunities. This is just a picture of what our annual greenhouse gas emissions look like. So we track on an annual basis how much carbon we emit from our operations on the campus. And uh, it's about 182,000 metric tons. The majority of those emissions come from um, a plant we have on campus, the cogeneration plant, that produces steam that we use for heat and electricity on the campus. We also procure a small amount of electricity for some of our buildings off the main campus. And then the, the, the remaining, um, what we call scope three, that other category, um, is mostly transportation, business, air travel, commute, and other categories. So just to mention, when we're thinking about strategies, we be thinking about them in these categories. So um, we've been at this for a while, over a decade. Um, we've produced three climate action plans uh, to move us forward. The most recent was a framework we did in 2016. 
Uh, we set a, a target in 20, 2007 to reduce our emissions to the levels they were in 1990, um, and we accomplished that um, in 2012. Uh, and we've been tracking our emissions even as we've been growing because of the efficiency measures that we've, we've taken on that actually, um, per square foot, we've seen some reduction in our emissions um, over time. So we're working on it, but there's a long way to go, as you could see from that pie chart I just showed. So I, I wanted to share a little bit about some of the um, kind of more recent actions that we've taken. So our green building program, uh, we have been doing um, a program called LEED for a number of years, which is a green standard for uh, new buildings. So we've been following that and being more kind of ambitious about um, how, those measures, how, how efficient we can be in our energy savings or our water savings. Um, and um, just to point, I did say I wasn't going to use the pointer, but the building, the large picture of the building on your left is our newest building, the Berkeley Way building, which you may have noticed it's on Shattuck at Hearst. Uh, that's about a 260,000 square foot building, uh, and it is um, not completely on electric, but uses very little natural gas. It uses just natural gas to do the domestic water heating. Everything else is either electric or it's got a lot of natural ventilation in it. So that's the direction we, we, we're moving. Um, and these are some of our other new buildings. So about 12% of our building stock now in terms of square footage has had some sort of environmental improvement and certification associated with it. So, and going forward, um, in going forward, that will be the case for sure. It's going back into older buildings as we're doing renovations to make those improvements as well. Solar, um, you know, we solar now is only accounts for about one percent of the electricity that we use. But we are, like I mentioned, looking at some additional sites um, that we can do uh, more solar in. So we're trying to add about two and a half more megawatts in the next five years to the campus system. And uh, these are just uh, some pictures of what we did. This is the recreation sports facility. It's very fun to do these projects, get to get on roofs and look at some pretty fabulous views. So that's kind of the best part. Um, we also have done a lot. Really the cornerstone of what we've done in the last decade is around saving energy and energy efficiency. We've done hundreds of energy efficiency projects on our buildings. They've ranged from... Um, um, lighting retrofits. So when I first came to the Berkeley campus, we were retrofitting the entire campus with more efficient fluorescence. We're now on a three-year cycle to go through the entire campus and do LED retrofits throughout the campus. Now the pricing is right, and they're much more efficient. Um, we also go into buildings and tune them up and make, make, the mechanical, make sure the mechanical systems are working well together. And then we also have... Um, this dashboard that you see, and part of it is that saving energy is also about engaging people in activities and actions they can take to reduce energy themselves. So when we've done some studies or some very concentrated kind of behavior change um, programs, we found that we can reduce our electricity use by 5 to 10% by people just taking more actions, like computer, uh, doing computer settings, turning out extra lights. So that really is an important part of what we're doing. Um, we also have a pretty aggressive new energy efficiency goal, and that is to reduce on an annual basis 
the energy intensity um, through efficiency measures by 2%. So um, we're going to be seeing a, 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 more, a steeper decline in our, um, which is a good thing, in our energy use. Uh, we've been doing a lot around um, reducing our impacts from fossil fuels in, in transportation. Uh, we have we are using less fuel today um, than we were in 1990 by about 25 percent, even though we've seen growth. So we've been eliminating some of our fleet. We've been um, transitioning to alternative fuels, uh, but a lot of it is around what we've done in the commute program. Uh, we have um, a a, a wide range of transportation options for people to commute, and that we've and we've also been reducing the amount of parking that we're being able to provide. So those, the combination of those two have really reduced that. So um, faculty and staff to the Berkeley campus, about 38 percent of that group still drives alone, but the rest of the group, uh, you know, over 60 percent, um, are doing things like bicycling, walking, taking the bus, taking BART. Um, and students, the, what we call the driver loan rate for students is um, about 8%. So that's been a big focus of ours as well. Um, and also saving water and reducing waste. Um, we're sending a, a, to the landfill a third less waste than we were 10 years ago which is good for the envi- it's good for the landfills, uh, good for the environment, also good for greenhouse gas emissions. We've been doing a lot more reuse um, and recycling, composting of organic materials. And saving water, we've, we, when we're, we have been um, doing retrofits um, of our domestic water features and some of our large equipment in our labs. Uh, but the water is actually an area where I think we're going to need to have more focus um, in the future. Uh, we live in a dry climate. And it's going to continue that way. And there's, uh, I think there's a lot of room for improvement for the campus in the area of uh, water savings. Again, around uh, engaging folks um, in this, we just completed uh, a um, UC system-wide campaign called the Cool Campus Challenge. I'm proud to say, although the official word isn't out yet, that Berkeley, um, it was a competition between the campuses to see how much we could pledge to reduce our carbon footprints, and I think Berkeley came out on top, so we're very proud of that. Um, but, you know, it's back to this, we as a community uh, need to uh, all fully engage as much as we can uh, in addressing climate change. Uh, so what does it look like for the future? We have this big goal, 2025, to reduce our carbon emissions um, to, uh, to zero net or net zero. Um, and this is kind of what the pie looks like right now uh, with, um, you know, that it, I'm not going to say business as usual, but that we continue uh, with our energy sourcing in a similar way um, as we are today. So you see that green, bright green bar there. That's the, we're going to be much more aggressive around energy efficiency, that 2% annual improvement. What we'd like to be able to do, since we have a plant on campus that's operating on natural gas right now, we'd like to find biogas, which is a um, carbon-free alternative um, to replace some of that natural gas. So we're working as a UC system um, to see what we can do in terms of large procurements for the whole UC system. I think um, the blue bar there is probably, um, it's going to be difficult for us to source that much biogas at, at a, a, 
in a cost-effective way by 2025, but that's what we're focused on, so anything's, it, it may still be possible. And then we're looking at least for a time period of using carbon offsets. That's investing in projects that are reducing carbon somewhere not on the campus, but somewhere where um, we can make some effective change in carbon reductions. So, um, you know, this is the... This is the, the, the picture that we have today, the, really the ultimate goal is that we will really be reducing to zero net our use on campus. It's just a matter of how much time will it take for us to find the renewable energy sources for that. Um, and, um, and I'm optimistic that we will get there. So this is just an idea of if we were to replace the energy system on campus with something that uses far less natural gas, still a little bit of natural gas on campus, we're calling it a nodal heat recovery energy system. That's the red bar there. That would be that would really change how we're going to reach carbon neutrality on campus with a focus on what we're doing on campus with our energy system. And we are in process right now of setting what those alternatives might be um, and what direction we can go um, and then how we can finance it. So there should be more discussion about that um, uh, coming up. And really, um, we're looking at how can we build a climate-smart future, and we're, we're not alone in it as a UC system. Across the UC system, we're all looking at how we can do this climate-smart um, um, future visioning. I mean, we have to think about when we're making big infrastructure decisions, what, where are we going to be in 2050, the theme of today's talk, and what are the, how can we make those best kind of decisions with kind of knowing what the future might bring. So our work um, at Berkeley, our work across the UC system is paralleling many in the community. Uh, there's um, an effort going on in the city of Berkeley. Some of you might be familiar with um, uh, Vision 2050. The city is looking to at um, what what could what what does the infrastructure need to look like to be climate smart, um, to deal with c climate change and all of the, those impacts, and then how do we make like smart investments around what we're doing? And then I had to put the peregrine falcon up. <laughs> Because I have been obsessing on the camera. Has anybody seen the camera on the Campanile? Yeah, okay. So um, anyway, it's just, a for me, a beautiful symbol that in this crazy urban area that we live in, that we can um, have peregrine falcons that want to come back and um, nest and... Um, have their babies on the Campanile with the bells ringing every hour, um, and uh, that that we can um, all we can all find a way to uh, live together and make this a better place. So, with that, thank you. I'm turn it over. Well, um, I'm glad you got to hear from Kira because. Uh, I've been learning a lot uh, about what she's been up to. And one of the things that's so striking about uh, Kira is that she's been able to really galvanize this great energy from the students. Um, and I was at an event where she gave a bunch of awards or she helped um, organize some awards. And the excitement and the, the graphics and everything was, was, really, was really inspiring to me. Uh, as somebody who's been working on this for a long time, uh, it's really great to see that kind of energy. So what I was going to do is, was sketch some of the policy landscape 
that's out there on, on climate change. Um, there's a theme throughout this thing of optimism from me. Uh, and it comes from, uh, I guess, a long career in this stuff. I started my career fighting strip mines in West Virginia and uh, went on to be an advocate for energy efficiency in buildings, uh, worked really hard on the early stages of getting uh, renewable energy industries off the ground, um, cultivated a network of energy advocates at the state level uh, nationally for many years at the Energy Foundation. Uh, and now I'm so pleased to be here at the Goldman School of Public Policy where I'm directing the, the, um, the, the Environmental Center. Um, and so what I'm going to do is talk about sort of in general the landscape and then use some examples of where uh, of things that are particularly interesting or exciting uh, or, or cutting edge, and, and including some of the things that we're, we're working on at the Goldman School's um, uh, Environmental Center. So it's hard to, to put in one frame, in one uh, slide, all the things that are going on, particularly in, in the California side. So that list on the left uh, is only just uh, you know, a very rough sketch. There's so many things going on. California is clearly a leader. Uh, California has very sophisticated uh, state agencies with, with great staff, and pretty much where there's an opportunity, we're seeing, we're seeing the state go after that. And, uh, uh, and a lot of states are following California. Sometimes they don't want to say the word California, but they really are following us uh, quite a bit in a lot of these in a lot of these innovations um, at the federal level we've seen we saw some progress certainly under the Obama administration um, and uh, uh, the good thing about our democracy is a lot of, a lot of that momentum is still there uh, in spite of what happened in the White House um, so uh, uh, I'll just go through a couple of them. One was this was this uh, regulation under the Federal Clean Air Act. That's one of my specialties is the is the Federal Clean Air Act. I publish a, a reference book on it uh, every year. And so the Obama administration moved after the carbon emissions in the electric power sector, and uh, and got that done just in time for Trump to cancel it. But the good news is that because of the because of the the tone it set, and because of combinations of other economic drivers, we got almost all of the carbon reductions that the clean power plan would have gotten um, if it had been fully implemented in the in the current administration. So that was that was kind of a, a nice success, even though it's been pulled back. Um, some real strong work on methane emissions. Methane is one of these things that was a sleeper issue for for, car, for climate in a, lo in a lot of ways. We didn't really know in the in the 2000s uh, how bad of a problem we had with leaky gas wells, pipelines, and 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 more recently we were discovering that methane, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas, something like 84 times the impact of carbon dioxide on it. 20-year basis. We're, we're, we're discovering that it's leaking everywhere. It's leaking in the street. It's leaking in buildings. And so the whole move toward decarbonizing the, the building sector is really important, not from just from a climate standpoint, but from an indoor air quality and a safety uh, perspective. 
the administration uh, got started on vehicle efficiency to reduce greenhouse gases uh, from a wide range of, of the vehicle sectors, um, and uh, federal facilities were a big leader. Uh, uh, it's nothing like turning over an energy efficiency carbon reduction mission to the military to see something really happen. Uh, and, some, and there's some really great stories about that. And we started looking at carbon sequestration uh, at the federal level with some, some um, incentives and some research. But in both places, there's a lot of unfinished business. So the wildfires, of course, have set California way back in terms of its greenhouse gas reductions. And, and we really have to have to begin to address that uh, more seriously. Um, there's a there's a movement in California that is moving towards greater local uh, control over the procurement of energy f uh, for residentials and businesses, sometimes called community choice aggregation. And unfortunately, and that's gained a lot of momentum. But and and I believe it's a good thing because you're going to see a lot more innovation in the distributed energy uh, world and technology if the, if the cities and towns uh, can determine their own fate on that. But it's kind of under attack right now at the, at the state level. Um, and we're just getting started on adaptation. So in the climate world, there are two pieces to it. There's mitigation that is reducing the emissions that are causing the problem. But we know that we're going to see, some, we're going to see a lot of adverse effects even if we were to cut emissions to zero today. So there's a need to get started on adaptation. And California has, an, has, has, has a very good legal policy f planning framework for that, but we're really just getting started on the, on the work of implementing that. And we have a cap-and-trade system here for greenhouse gases, which is a really important sort of one of the pillars for how you reduce greenhouse gases. And there's some flaws in that, in that system that California needs to look at. At the federal level, well, there are all the rollbacks coming from the Trump administration that have to be resisted and hopefully reversed in about two years uh, or less. Uh, and, uh, but the other thing that's disturbing at the federal level is just this massive investment in, in gas infrastructure, pipelines, LNG export terminals, power plants, and... Um, and th th this is really setting us back and was not adequately addressed in the prior administration and certainly not now. Now, you notice I don't say, uh, uh, I, uh, I don't say, um, I say gas rather than uh, natural gas. There's nothing natural about gas. It's a highly refined product and it explodes. Uh, and it's actually one of the things that, that has been underappreciated as a driver of, of greenhouse gases, and it's something we have to do. And then finally, I'll say, as a, as a Clean Air Act expert, we're seeing these kind of insidious attacks occurring at a really deep sort of technical level on the, 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 the health science foundations for clean air standards, and it's something that we have to really watch carefully because uh, the, the Trump administration could do some real damage there. Now, I've talked about state and federal, but the thing that is one of the most exciting things to me about this moment in time on climate is what's happening at the local level. Um, uh, and, and you notice on that map that it isn't just on the coasts or in the northeast. This is happening all over the place. Even in very conservative states, you see cities stepping up and saying, wow, we, we have a lot of greenhouse gases uh, 
and there's some, there are a lot of things we can do about it and save our citizens money and, and, and we'll, t- we'll take some initiative on this. And so uh, th- th- this is particularly important in a period of time when the national government is really not doing a very, is, is doing bad things actually. And so th- this is happening at the state, at the, at the local level and I think it's very, uh, uh, you know, it's a very important for the long term. These mayors and city council members and department heads will be the future leaders at the, at the state level and the, and the national level in, in many cases. So I wanted to uh, spend a few, just a few minutes on electrification of buildings. And so here's a picture I took in the, in the Los Angeles library. And uh, it, I, I suppose what it is is in the event of an earthquake uh, that this thing would go off if there was leaking uh, uh, gas in the building. So it's great that they have that. The problem is that, that there's gas in almost all buildings and is already leaking and certainly a big accident risk. So, um, so it, the, 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 uh, the, the electrification of buildings is completely feasible today and we need to get working on that. Um, I wanted to show you this this uh, quote here, which says, it's quite possible that in 20 years from now, you will only be using electricity, homes, mobility, businesses. And, but look who said that, an oil company, uh, Royal Dutch Shell. Um, okay, so this is just a couple of, uh, of visuals on the, the kinds of technology that are out there that weren't even there five, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, the heat pump technology has come along very well and is a complete substitute for water heating, uh, space heating. Uh, I know uh, I used to be one of those people who really liked my gas stove, but there's an alternative even to that. Uh, induction stoves are quite, are quite um, uh, an effective substitute and, um, and are re- the, all the f- famous chefs of the world really like them. Uh, so we've got options even in our homes and our, and our restaurants and businesses. So you've heard a lot about the transportation sector and the ability for electrification to occur there. Uh, you can see electric, uh, electric vehicles, EV, electric vehicle sales, are really surging, uh, not just here in California, but um, really around the world. Um, it looks to us like the cost of electric vehicles will reach parity. That means that, that, that it'll be cost about the same as an internal combustion engine, that's the ICE, uh, in three to four years. Um, and, uh, and this is not just on the... Uh, this is on both the upfront cost of the vehicle, but also because you can, the electricity tends to be less expensive than gas, uh, and so you save money on fuel and maintenance. And so there's a really a massive amount of work going on for charging infrastructure for cars. That's, that's really uh, uh, an important development here. And, and one, one uh, observer of this said that by 2022, 2023, practically throw a rock at those years, um, uh, you know, EVs will dominate the market. And by 2029, it's game over for internal combustion engines. That's how fast it's happening. Um, the same thing on buses. In fact, this is a bit of an exaggeration when I say it's done, but uh, today it doesn't make any sense to buy a diesel bus anymore. 
because the, the electric or the, uh, or the hy hydrogen buses already uh, make more sense uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but it's not just buses and cars. This is one of the exciting things I've had a chance to work on. There are a whole series of things that are hard to de decarbonize. Trucking, maritime shipping, airplanes. And yet there are technologies available today that can get us really deep reductions here. Uh, and we're building on a lot of progress already. So this, this chart shows uh, over the past, I think only, well, it's the big, the big uh, gains have been in the past 10, 12 years. We've gotten the emissions from heavy-duty trucking down dramatically. Diesel particulates, NOx, um, uh, and, uh, but, but look at the gap. See in the lower right-hand corner, the greenhouse gas emissions haven't gone down and in fact are trending up. But today we have opportunities to even get reductions from this heavy-duty uh, transport section. And we need to because even with that reduction in emissions, the, the vehicle miles traveled by heavy-duty trucking is rising and we've got air pollution hotspots that still exist in many communities. I'm working particularly with groups in West Oakland to deal with the diesel emission exposure uh, from port operations there. And, and we're looking for ways to basically decarbonize uh, the port of Oakland to follow the, uh, the progress that's being made in other ports, including the LA ports and, and European ports in particular. Um, and California's got a big role here because look how much of the total cargo uh, uh, that comes into the United States comes through our ports. Um, and so here's, here's what's going to happen in just the next few years. Uh, truck manufacturers are coming out with new uh, equipment uh, pretty heavily in the next, by 20, uh, this year, next year, 2021, 2022. You're going to see even heavy-duty trucks um, for, a lot of, uh, uh, for a lot of uses. Now, it doesn't get all of trucking. It, we don't yet have a... Uh, for, for long-distance trucking, it'll be a different technology, probably hydrogen and fuel cells. But, but this, is, this is starting to happen even at that hard-to-decarbonize sector. Um, the other thing that gives me optimism at this point is, 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 is the surge of activity at the corporate level. I don't know, maybe, maybe this was what, what unintended consequence of Trump is that he was so bad that a lot of the, lot of the corporate-level leaders started stepping up and said, well, we, we got opportunities, we're going to do it. Um, and, um, you know, when I moved to California, there were all these great, uh, all these great uh, 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 IPA beers and all these great things, but I think I'm going to have to go out and buy some Budweiser because... Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is a picture of, of one of the wind turbines they put up. Um, you can see it when you're going west on the uh, 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 on I-80 towards Sacramento. Uh, but they're doing all kinds of things. Solar. They're using. They're setting up a whole system of hydrogen uh, fueling stations for for their heavy-duty trucks. Um, I just want to get that six-pack and have my picture taken with it and send it to the CEO. <laughs> I said, I've come back. You know. Uh, and, uh, okay, so here's another optimistic moment. Um, look at what's happened here. Now, I, I spent a lot of my earlier career trying to fight power plant emissions, which are causing acid rain and ozone 
and fine particulates on sort of a regional level in the Northeast. Uh, and and we st when we started off that work, we had a huge opposition from all the utilities and all the fossil interests. Um, uh, and yet, the support for cutting those emissions, those acid gas emissions in particular, kept going up until we got into this range that we're now seeing on climate. And when that happened, the politics shifted, and we got really one of the most powerful environmental laws ever, ever enacted in world history in 1990, because eventually the will of the people came, you know, you know drove action. And, and it was really powerful action led by... Um, uh, led by the California delegation, in particular Henry Waxman, uh, a member of the a house from uh, from the LA area. Uh, so we're seeing this stuff. Uh, we're seeing this support all around, including from Republicans and Independents. Uh, one of the things, so two things strike me about this: twenty-two percent of the public does not believe climate change is happening. Well. Okay, but they're kind of marked being, becoming uh, overwhelmed by uh, thinking people. No, just kidding. Uh, so, um, and then the other thing is that this is the first time this has ever happened that climate rose to the top of the level of concerns of Democratic and independent voters as one of their top concerns. Usually it was down there about fifth, fifth sixth, maybe tenth. It's top, it's top issue right now, uh, at least among that. That group, that group of, of voters. So, but there's still a lot of work to do, uh, certainly. And um, here's just kind of a list of things that, that I see at the, at, the, at the regulatory area that we have to work on. Uh, carbon sequestration. So it's not enough just to cut the emissions. Uh, we also have to start pulling the carbon out, out of the air uh, and out of the, and out of the uh, smokestacks. Um, and, uh, and building carbon into soils through changes in agriculture. So this is, this is going to be a really important thing that's going to happen over, that needs to happen over the next 10 years. Um, another thing that's happening is we need, to sh we need to shrink the amount of fossil gas that's used in power generation. And California is doing a lot of this right now. We're finding that there, there are all these power plants scattered around the landscape that only operate intermittently because they're in some kind of a load pocket um, to keep the, system, the electric system stable and reliable. But there are all these distributed renewables, distributed energy efficiency, storage technologies today that allow us to basically eliminate the need for those plants. In the Midwest, uh, it's a different story. And there, I just saw a, a report that said that an 850 megawatt gas plant proposed by a big utility in Indiana not the liberal uh, uh, center of the world, was rejected by state government because they have better alternatives, including renewables. A thing I was talking about just this morning in a meeting with some state officials and university officials is that we don't really... California is a big oil state. We, we produce a lot of oil. We refine a huge amount of oil. Um, this is a big industry, and there are a lot of people involved, there's a lot of infrastructure, but we don't have a plan for transitioning those workers, that infrastructure, to something else. And I think this need to, we need to start thinking about that. Um, and uh, I mentioned adaptation earlier, and building electrification, I think, is, is a really important current focus right now. 
a lot of places around the country are still expanding gas distribution systems that are leaky when they start and they get leakier as they age. And so we need to really kind of stop that and begin to shrink these systems. And California, New York, and a couple other places are leading on that. So at the federal level, we really don't have good national controls on methane emissions from oil and gas production, pipelines, um, uh, 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 storage. Uh, the states are beginning to pick up the mantle on that. And even in places like Wyoming and Texas, we're seeing increasingly better regulations, but we need it at the national level. Um, uh, we, we, we don't really have effective national regulations to control greenhouse gases from gas-fired power plants. Uh, done some work on coal, a lot of progress on coal, but gas is still out there and growing. Um, the feds can really revive uh, the vehicle efficiency in greenhouse gas uh, standards for, for vehicles. California and a few other states are going to do it uh, if the federal courts don't stop us, but that we need to get the rest of the country on there. So that's a key th um, ish mission for the next administration. Of course, R&D funding is really important from the federal government. Um, and, uh, you know, could, it, you know could, we, could we progress in the next five years, let's say, to a national piece of carbon legislation? Uh, and I think that the conversations around the Green New Deal are kind of an interesting precursor to that, to, to that need. So the, the, one of the dilemmas for uh, uh, an activist, like I consider myself sort of a, an environmental or an energy activist, um, is, is this thing that, the, that the, the, the individual action is so important. I've seen it so many times where one person or a small group of people had an idea and they were able to energize uh, people and really get things going. But at the same time, you, you, can't, you can't change history by yourself, right? So um, I just wanted to end with this one, uh, a couple of quotes. One was from a very good friend of mine who works for the, Mohawk tribes in, in New York, and, he, and we, were, we were talking one day, oh, this is such a heavy load, how are we going to do it? And, and he would say, all you can do is apply a progressive force to history, and with other people, you can make a big difference. And then, since we're here at the Freight and Salvage, uh, I know that John McCutcheon was here, he's a hammer dulcimer guy that I got to know when I lived in Appalachia, um, and he has this song that, that has the, the refrain that goes like this, drops of water turn a mill, singly none, singly none. So uh, we get things done by all of us uh, standing up and doing what we can, projecting our ideas, uh, forming coalitions, getting active. Uh, so here I am, a, a guy in my 60s, late 60s actually, and I, I keep saying to myself, ah, I got one more in me, I got one more campaign in me, I got one more thing, but the, what always happens is I, I get done with that one more, and then I got one more, so <laughs> I hope that all, all of you have one more as well. Thank you. We've got a lot of hands <laughs> up here, so um, I'll let the person with the mic decide. <laughs> I mean, it all sounds good, but one of the things is you know, it's good, easy to make these changes with new facilities, but when you're dealing with existing lives and existing facilities, they have to be 
things have to be a lot more expensive in terms of uh, fossil fuels. I mean, I drive a 22-year-old car. It's fairly fuel efficient. Uh, but to upgrade uh, to an electric car, I'd have to change out uh, the service to my house. I'd have to change out the load center. I'd actually have to move the load center ha- so I could have adequate space in front of the, the, the circuit panels. And in terms of, like, induction cooking, which is a great idea, I'd have to change all the uh, cookware that I got when I got married. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, agree, I agree. And, and one of the fun things I've been doing in the past, like, three months has been in this, this, uh, this email chain of people talking about the difficulty of making that electrification in buildings. And all the stuff that all the stuff that has to happen in the building trades, there's a million little details that, in order to make sure that w- the shift that you make is affordable, and two, that it's safe. Uh, and uh, and you know, it, it reminds me so much of the early days of of solar energy, when there was a whole series of those little technical uh, details that had to be worked out, but eventually. You know, we got there. So this conversation gives me hope. Now, of course, the thing is that what we're asking people, what people are being asked to do is not rip out something that they put in five years ago uh, with something else. It's more like look for those moments when the equipment is aging out and, and, uh, and so that the investment in something new occurs then so it's affordable. And I think that that's, that's a metaphor, that that thing in the home is a metaphor for what ha- needs to happen in commercial buildings, in, in campuses, in, in heavy industry, and in vehicle fleets. Uh, because if you, if you catch that moment when the old equipment is ready to go and you invest in something new, and if there's state, uh, state in, uh, incentives to help you do that where the, the cost hasn't come down far enough. So I think we need, in, we need greater levels of incentives to help people uh, make that shift in, in individual buildings. But you're right, I don't think they'll pay for the new pots and pans. Yeah. I remember a few, at least I think I remember a few years ago, a fair amount of celebration that we were going to gas and power plants as compared to coal because yeah. they were so much better. And here I'm hearing gas is not such a great answer. Uh, is it in comparison to renewables or has something more been discovered? Well, what, what happened in, in the mid-aughts, like 05, 06 or so, um, there, was, uh, there was this, uh, it was at a time when gas was still, well, a few years before that, was, gas is still pretty expensive. Uh, and, um, uh, but then the fracking boom happened, and gas prices dropped really dramatically. And... Um, and, and, and gas was being used to displace coal. And the thought at the early, in the early stages, well, that's good because it's, you know, it's only half the greenhouse gases of coal. But what we discovered was that, the, that there was so much methane being lost at the well site, in the pipelines, even at the power plants themselves. Uh, and, and, and the methane was such a, a, a strong driver of, of global warming that when you compared the full life cycle of coal and gas, it was only a little better and, and not nearly the kind of on the trajectory we need to be. Um, so 
Um, there is still some gas going in, and th there might be an argument for uh, that we that that we'll continue to use it in a, in a period of transition. But we've got we've got to get to 80, 90 percent reduction pretty fast, and so. Um, the, the, the idea that we would invest in new expensive gas infrastructure, power plants, pipelines, et cetera, when, you know, eight or ten years out, we have to be out of it. Uh, uh, you know, it just doesn't make sense. But that kind of huge investment is happening uh, in the United States right now, and so it's one of the, it's one of the big challenges here. The, the, just, uh... the gas is better in some ways from the standpoint of conventional air pollutant particles, metals, acid gases, um, but from a greenhouse gas standpoint, it's not much better. And I was just going to add, even 10 years ago when we're having conversations in the state of California, we hadn't even decided yet whether electrification of our vehicle fleets was going to be the direction we wanted to go. It was kind of undecided as the alternative, and California is leading that way. One of the things is that we have become we've made these large asset investments in natural gas plants and things like that. We're not going to strand those assets. So it's really a good time to think about that natural gas plant that's only going to live for another 20 years. What is it that it really needs to happen next? And I can also say that the utilities are not that interested in buying electricity that's produced from natural gas plants anymore. We were trying to sell some of our electricity, and they really weren't interested in it. So these are all good signs that... The, the market is going to shift us away from. And I'm going to start using it, not using natural gas anymore. I haven't even thought about that. Just gas. And we're going yeah. to get away from gas. <laughs> uh, I, I want to say to all the audience that uh, if you have a choice on what type of uh, heater or what type of cooking stove to buy, buy uh, induction uh, heaters, our induction stoves, they are so damn good. Uh, I just got one about four or five years ago. The thing works so well, it's unbelievable. It, there's no advantage gas has over this. This thing turns off instantly, uh, turns on instantly. It's pretty impressive. Anyhow, I, I have another question. Uh, there is, uh, in addition to uh, the carbon dioxide, I'm sorry, the methane, that is released on our wellheads and all that stuff uh, that is loose. Uh, methane is emitted from the the, uh, the ground uh, in the north, yeah. and uh, it's all in the natural freezing or uh, uh, melting of the ice up there. Uh, a ton of methane is is released. What is the uh, the a quantity of methane that's naturally produced compared to all the methane that is made by pipes and our, our bad stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that number precisely, but the um, the, the risk is that through uh, warming of the permafrost, uh, that the current levels uh, will balloon. Uh, because the more of those methane hydrides, I think they're called, will, will become mobile in, in the global environment. And so um, it, it, it's one of those feedback mechanisms that are kind of fright, really frightening about how we could quickly go into a, 
uh, a real crisis over over even only a few decades. So, um, uh, I think today uh, there are natural sources of methane and always have been. Uh, I don't know how it compares with the with the anthropogenic, but I think it's I think it's a lot lower um, from where we are today. Uh, I'll try to. I'm going to research that because I need to know the answer to that one. (laughs) 